Amen. So my prayer for us today that is envisioned in the words of that song, which to us becomes also a declaration of intent, written by Fanny Crosby, the great hymnist, who penned the words concerning the servanthood of, of the believer. The words that she penned, willing my Savior to take up the cross, willing to suffer reproaches and loss, willing to follow if thou wilt but lead, only support me with grace in my need. Master, thou callest, and this I reply, ready and willing, Lord, hear am I. Such wonderful words and a reminder, a lasting reminder, Lord, here am I. And reality is, this is my heart's desire, would be that not only our heart, but our mind also will be constantly attentive to the demand to call out, Lord, here am I. So it is today, February the 14th, 2021, many people across the world will observe uh, Valentine's Day with their significant other, and but see, today I get to celebrate with Tracy on her birthday. And some would say, Pastor, you get hit with a double whammy, birthday and Valentine's Day, but I don't mind. I don't mind that. There are a lot of Sunday mornings when I would stand and preach, and there's not many birthdays that come along that would fall on the day when I would stand and proclaim the word in the pulpit, but today it does. And I want to present a little something to her for her birthday. Yeah, don't mind the Steven Seagal type hair there on me. But I have a little something for you this morning. Um, I got the platform to do it this morning as pastor, so I'm going to. Uh, a, little, a little cake for you. And here you go. <laughs> Happy birthday. I love you. But there's a reason also that I stand here today, and not only because I love my wife, but I wanted to reflect a little bit. Over a decade ago, sitting at our dinner table, we sat there with a sense of awe and a sense of worry and a sense of excitement and anxiety because we decided as a couple to follow the call of the Lord into ministry. We didn't know how we were going to get there, just that we wanted to be obedient, scared, yes. I would further my education by enrolling in a great commission seminary. And so I enrolled in Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. And as one would imagine, Tracy and I were frightened. We sold our house and, and uprooted everything and moved to Wake Forest. And we got on campus and we found out that everybody almost did the same thing as we did. 
We were excited about this adventure. And we're still on this adventure today. We're still on this adventure trying to be obedient to the call of the Lord. And I remember having this unmistakable call to preach. And I remember vividly, at least for me, and I'm sure she has too, saying, Lord, here am I. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I know that you're going to see us through. It has not been a smoothly paved road because the enemy has tried to throw every pitfall that he can our way. But we have seen God's faithfulness time and time again. Have you seen God's faithfulness? Has he been faithful to you today? Today I want to speak to you about an important dynamic in the life of the believer that says, Lord, here am I. The title of the sermon might make you a little anxious this morning if you opened up your bulletin and you saw a title that said, Get Behind Me, Satan. You might have thought to yourself, well, what are we in for today? But I would offer you some encouragement. It's not going to be what you think. I'm not going to say that you need to go around rebuking everyone that you think is possessed by the devil. And frankly, I wouldn't recommend you do that. Quite the contrary, the rebuking aspect of the sermon will be in your life as the worshiper. So not what you might think. For, for those at home and listening in, Mark chapter 8, 31 and 38, and the reference to the title is, Get thee behind me, or get behind me, Satan, rebuke and restoration. And my goal this morning in this sermon is to focus on that dichotomy. That is displayed in every single child of God at some point in their life. The dichotomy of rebuke and restoration. So I will invite you, let's stand together for the reading of the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 8 verse 31, we will begin. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of the word of the Lord. Mark the evangelist pins for us beginning Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed and after three days he would rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he that is Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to give us clear vision of the scripture today. You would speak to us plainly through it. Lord, that you would use me, hide me behind the cross, 
May I be humbled and Christ be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So it is a good thing for us to, to recap, to recollect on where we were just, just last week. It's good to go back into, into where we were last week and because there's so many truths packed in Scripture. You can read something today and you get something out of it that you, you didn't get out of it yesterday. And that's the beauty of the Spirit of God. There's so many truths and so much applicable truths that it would almost be impossible to learn all of God's Word in, in one sitting or two or three or or whatever it might be. The scriptures are packed with truth and one could spend a lifetime and never glean of all of its treasures. This quote from St. Jerome, I think I will remember this quote for the rest of my life. And it has been meaning to me. It has helped me to be, to be humble before the Lord and know that it is all his work. This quote from St. Jerome will always, in my ministry, be, be meaningful to me. I want you to listen to these words penned by St. Jerome and used by many theologians since. He said, the scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning. And deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever reaching the bottom. He also said, make knowledge of the scriptures that you love, live with them, meditate on them, make them the sole object of your knowledge and inquiries. So if you recap from last week as we dig into the word of the Lord, the question was multifaceted with two main directives. Number one, who do the people say that Jesus is? A question that is still relevant today and still distorted today. And then, as the worshiper, well, who do you say that he is? Is he Lord? Amen. Is he Lord? Has Jesus become or becoming an image in which you have fashioned in your own mind? Or is he, Jesus, as Peter proclaimed, the Son of the living God? By the way, he bears this title, Son of the living God, and many titles in Scripture that he that he bears as far as a title of the Lord Jesus, Messiah. And he bears these titles whether or not we acknowledge them. It is Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who came to take away the sins of the world. Is he your Lord and Savior today? Or is he simply someone that you call on when you are in a pinch or when you are in trouble? Who do you say that he is? Listen very carefully. Jesus is not your homeboy. He isn't a genie in a bottle or any other well-known worldly analogies that you can think of. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And I don't have enough space or time this morning to unpack or elaborate on his fullness. But praise be to God, we get a little snippet of that right here. The problem with society's attempt to define and shape Jesus is very simple. In their attempt to make Jesus, the Son of the living God, more applicable, more acceptable, more palatable, is that they have presented a Jesus that has no authority, has no spine. They have crafted a Jesus in their heart and mind that is nothing more than an idol that is on the horizon of culture who will never step forward and encroach upon our lives. 
He is the one who not only will come into our life and encroach, if you will, but he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is one that will be an ever-present Savior, a Messiah, a comforter to you. And this image that they have crafted, the world has crafted to, to pat our ego and to build up our, our individuality. The image that has been crafted in the world is, could be, not be farther from the truth. So let us look more intently at the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what is next for the disciples? What is the next logical step? See, see God's Word is logical. In fact, God calls us to reason together. What is the next logical step for Jesus in the life of his disciples at this point? Whether or not Mark realizes this, he's writing a, a logical trajectory of our Lord Jesus. What is next? Well, he interacts with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. What is next on the disciple-making docket? What is next? There are two teachable moments that we see in this narrative that I want to bring out that I mentioned earlier, and one of them is the rebuke. Part of the dichotomy, part of the, really the restoration is part of, of the rebuke as well. And you know sometimes teaching comes through rebuke. Even though we don't like it at first. Admonition, rebuke. What exactly is intended by this rebuke? And what do we learn from it? What do we learn from a rebuke? I can tell you, we can learn much when a child of God rebukes in gentleness and love, seeking your restoration. But what do we do? What do we do? We throw our wall up and say, who are you to tell me? Who are you to judge? But listen what Jesus does here. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and rise again on the third day. And so Jesus is just laying down a pre-gospel. He's laying down a pre-gospel. It's a picture of beauty and it is a picture of compassion from our Lord. A picture of beauty. He is forecasting his death. And I want you to remember what he asked last week. He, as he asked, who do the people say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He asked, and at what point do the disciples actually get it? In terms of Jesus' mission, when did they actually get it? It's probably one of the closest places we find up until now where they get an understanding of who Jesus is and his mission other than the resurrection. Now, once he rebukes their faulty notions of Messiah, we'll see in just a moment, it had captivated Peter's heart and mind, and it had began to captivate the mind of the disciples. Jesus began to teach, to teach them. Now, up until this moment, Scripture shows us that Jesus' doctrine had steered clear of a very cognitive teaching concerning his death and his resurrection. But since the proclamation issued by Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus began to teach on this up-and-coming reality. 
as if to say, now you are ready to be taught, even though you won't understand it fully, until after the resurrection, until after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and indwells you, will you understand? But you are ready to get some of this, snippets of the truth. Imagine hearing this strange doctrine for the first time. This is a new one for the disciples because so many years they have heard and they have been taught that Messiah was going to be a political Messiah and not a suffering servant. They have been taught that Messiah is going to come and is going to alleviate their, uh, you know, their, uh, their imprisonment under the Roman Empire. It's going to lift the thumb of Rome from, out, from, uh, from off of them. And, and so they look for a political Messiah and not a suffering servant. The elders and the chief priests and the and the scribes have, and they have been misleading the people for years concerning the coming of Messiah. Not only had they been misleading, but they had also been filling their pockets along the way. All the sacrifices. We've been working through the Old Testament. We'll return to that um, probably next year, working through some of the Old Testament. All the sacrifices that they saw in, in Leviticus and all up through Deuteronomy and Numbers, all the sacrifices and, and measures that were meant to atone for sins. There were never any red flags for a better time coming. There was never any red, red flags for a better time coming as, as it should have been. They should have been looking. There's there something about the Messiah and these projections that, that, that these, these guys are just not teaching right. It was always the rule and the letter of the law instead of, of a coming grace and atonement seen in and through the Messiah. This is a strange doctrine for them to hear. So this is the first time that Jesus mentions his suffering and death, at least in this explicit way. In what terms? What terms? What terms do we know? Even as we begin to think about the communion that we are partaking in just, in just a few moments. In what terms? What terms of his suffering and death and resurrection? Well, that he will be betrayed. He will be betrayed. He will be arrested. He will be bound up. He will be beaten to a place of unrecognition. He will be spit upon. His beard will be pulled. He will be battered and torment, And then he will suffer. So that you and I might have eternal life. Imagine being the fly on the wall. Hearing this pre-proto-gospel proclamation from the one who was going to hang on the cross and rise again. At what point did this click? You know, at, at, at this reiteration, I would say something like, let me say that a little Louder for the ones in the back. But since I detest that phrase, I probably shouldn't even have said it. I will simply say, church, do you hear me now? He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was bound up. He was beaten. He was spit upon. Battered. He was tormented. He suffered so that you and I might have eternal life. Amen? It seems the disciples still didn't grasp this truth of the coming sacrifice. And, and this is reflected through the voice of Peter. Listen to what Peter says. They, they didn't quite get it. He said this plainly and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke Jesus. 
the wording in the Greek language gives us this notion that Jesus kept on saying plainly, laying it out to them, and then imagine Peter rebuking in the same way, laying it out in continual fashion, rebuking Jesus. Just who is justified in doing the rebuking here? Jesus turns and sees his disciples. That should let us know this is a teachable moment. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not, you're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Almost reminiscent of Job. Job is complaining, although we might not call it complaining, but he was complaining. Asking for an answer from the Lord. And God says to Job, where were you at? When I created the earth, where were you at when I laid the four corners of the world? When I looked at the plumb line, where were you at when I created the Leviathan or the behemoth? Where were you at when I, uh, when I set the created order in motion? Very reminiscent. Well, who re- remember, who is sovereign here? So he fires back. While everyone witnessed as to teach them all, as if to say, who are you to rebuke me? And there is the, here's the rub, here's the rub. There is the rebuke. Here's where the real rub comes in. Here's 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 the rebuke. But you're not thinking rightly on the things of God. And wow, what a, what a stinging accusation that is. Many of us today, not thinking rightly on the things of God, Myself included. Again, this rebuke is not for you to issue a rebuke on the account of someone else as if to say, get behind me, Satan. The rebuke can be found in Romans chapter 8 and beginning with verse 5 that says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But who will be living according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and is peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law indeed because it cannot. So just as Jesus rebuked Peter for his distorted way of thinking, so there are ideas and things that consume our heart and mind and all ways of thinking that need rebuking. It was Peter Marshall who said, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change. And make us easy to live with when we are right. Isn't that true of human nature? Pride. When we are wrong, we hold on to pride. And when we are right, we flaunt it proudly, don't we? But there are things in our lives that need to be rebuked and purged away. As I mentioned this, this is something that has stuck with me over the last two or three weeks. The dark corners in our lives. Things that we only think that we know about. And may I also let you know and remind you that the Lord knows of them too. The Lord will not use a dirty vessel in ministry. It might be a wayward eye. That is full of lust. It might mean that you have a, a, an anger or an envy and you need to rebuke. Maybe you're holding on to unforgiveness. 
You may need to rebuke unforgiveness or build those bridges that you have burnt so long ago. Maybe you are here this morning and there is a secret sin that you think no one knows about. That deep corner, that deep dark uh, corner in the recess of your soul that you think no one knows about. And today you need to say, get behind me, Satan. Now we are not told if Satan had control over Peter. It could easily be that the Lord had possessed him. Could easily be, as some scholars would even say. But it could easily also be that the devil was trying to tempt Jesus to escape his looming death. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And it is really more, more than just a rebuke against the devil. It becomes a rebuke for anything that would distort your heart and your mind from right worship and contemplation on the person of Jesus. In a very crude way to demonstrate this. Have you ever been, have you, have you ever known a person that was on a diet, maybe yourself? You ever known a person that was on a diet and, and they are offered food that they really love, but they cannot have? For me, it would be a slice of pizza or a nice ribeye steak or something like that. They are offered the food, but they can't have it. And the person on the diet says, get thee behind me, Satan. As easy as this could be a rebuke of the literal enemy, the devil, it is just as powerful of a rebuke on the things that distort worship. Things that take our heart and mind away from adoration to the king of kings. God will not use a dirty vessel. We are called to be close, as Johnny Hunt would say, close and clean. The second portion of this dichotomy is the restoration. Believe it or not, this, rebuke, this rebuking is actually setting the groundwork for restoration. The resurrection will be the one tool in history that will ultimately rebuild and ultimately refashion the spiritual status of humanity. Although we have a duty to vote and we should, voting your conscience will not do it. Putting our trust and faith in a political entity will not do it, or anyone. It will ultimately be rebuilt and refashioned by the Lord Jesus himself and the gospel. The restoration. Listen to verse 34. And call the crowd to him with the disciples. So again, that ought to be telling us that he is teaching again. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels, they will save it. So, so knocking the blocks out from under Peter. Have you ever had the, knock, the, the blocks knocked out from under you? prideful and then the Lord sends someone or the Lord by his Holy Spirit knocks the blocks out from under you this is what happens to Peter being rebuked by the Lord Jesus he he now gathers he now gathers his disciples and now begins to mend rebuke and restore after an appropriate rebuke there is always healing but not only is there always healing, there is always learning for those that will invite a rebuke. Hey, if I'm wrong, rebuke me. 
Okay, gently, please. If I am out of step with the will of God, please come to me. Let's pray together. I don't want to be out of the will of God after an appropriate, underlined, underscore, hyphen, whatever, however you want to, however you want to mark this, an appropriate rebuke. There is always learning. There is always healing. And so the call now is to deny yourself, follow me. And by the way, rebuking and restoration at, at this point in the life of the disciples is far from over. And I will reiterate that to you as well. Rebuking and restoration is far from over in your life if you are a child of God in Christ today, 2021. Far from over. And this entails that his followers must deny themselves of worldly idols, cast them down, suffer many things, just as the Lord, and pursue Christ closely. I would add, closely and in a clean fashion. Clean hands and a clean heart. Now, the sad picture today is this. As we say that we follow Jesus, in fact, if I was to ask you a question, how many in here love Jesus? Don't raise your hand. We say that we follow Jesus and we love Jesus and we would die for him the reality is we are like Peter, pre-resurrection, sneaking, following Jesus way behind and not too closely, just at that safe distance, just safe, to, safe enough that people will not say to you, you're one of his, aren't you? These verses, they, they scream of, of, of selflessness, devotion. There, there are some actions I want to highlight for you. Some actions that we see at, in the remainder of chapter, chapter 8. It is come after him. Deny thyself. Take up your cross. Follow him. Lose their life for the sake of eternal gain. And in, in reality this becomes a very symbolic Shadow of the cross it becomes more insight than it had ever come to them before. The shadow of the cross looming, if you will, in all of its horror and beauty. So the Lord here is he's speaking to the group of disciples that will ultimately meet a martyr's death. There have been many who have gone on before us right here in this community. Many who have gone on and who love the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, today we'll celebrate the life of Miss Wilma. And she went by natural means. And I don't know if we know anyone who's ever met a martyr's death and has, has lost their life for the sake of the gospel. But that might change over time. Will you be willing to lay down your cross and follow him even if it means that we die a martyr's death? No doubt in this group there, there will be some, in fact, who will die a martyr's death. They will lose their life for the sake and the furtherance of the gospel. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to lay out and get down your own life if you knew that later on down the road there might be 10, 15, 20 people who might be saved because of your testimony and they gave an ear to the gospel? Would you do it? Now I know our lives are not built on hypothetical questions and it would be very difficult for us to answer. 
But listen to what he says in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? The answer to that question is nothing. We profit nothing in this world. And yet it costs everything. What can a man give in return for his soul? Again, the answer is, can't give anything. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of possessions, there is no amount of works that will equal the value of the soul. Verse 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I would imagine as Peter was traipsing around following the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know because I can't peer in the mind of Peter. But I would, I would probably be suspect to think that, that these words were ringing true at some point. He is reminded uh, even in his brokenness. Following Jesus way off, denying him, and then remembering these. I don't want to stand before the Lord and he be say, you are ashamed of me and I'm ashamed of you. So Jesus gives the stern warning, which I would call a sign of an unregenerate heart. Now let me explain that. If you deny the Lord or continue to deny him, or that you are ashamed of him before others, Chances are you do not know him. Now that's between you and the Lord and I'm not the ultimate authority on who is saved and who is not. But I would imagine that if you deny the Lord Jesus at a constant pace that you don't know him. Or are ashamed of him. First, we saw the rebuke. The calling out of things that hinder our understanding of the Christ of the Son of the living God, which I might add, the foundation of the church is built upon. And then we saw the restoration. Part of the particular restoration was a right understanding of following the Lord. What does it take to follow Him? Even if it meant taking up your own cross or maybe even facing death. We are blessed to live in the country that we do live in with these freedoms that we do have now but that is not guaranteed that that will be forever I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon how we had sat down, Tracy and I had sat down at the dinner table over a decade ago and we mulled over the prospect of selling our home and stepping out on faith and I could think of a couple of people who gave me a swift kick in the rear to get me on Get me on my way. I could tell you personally, I had, I had run from the calling of the Lord on my life. Now, I was saved. I, I, knew, that, I knew I was a child of God. I was, hadn't run from, from, from that. I, I'd run from the Lord's calling on my life for a few years. Now, it doesn't mean that I ran from Him in terms of salvation, but obedience towards ministry. And I can tell you during that time, of running, I was probably one of the most irritable people that you would ever meet. I was ill, mean sometimes, short-tempered, and I wasn't always pleasant to be around. Simply because I resisted the call to preach and teach and to say, Lord, here am I. There were many times when Tracy wanted to say to me, and I know this, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, I do not consider myself perfect today or to be in any perfect demeanor. In, in, in fact, I would be inadequate to, 
in, in many regards to, to bring this message. But I can say, praise the Lord, I am not like I was yesteryear. And praise God, I answered the call to ministry. Where I once was holding on to the securities of the world, the, the lure of the white picket fence and the house on the hill and securities of having a, a, a good job, so to speak, guaranteed money in the bank. The Lord simply wanted me to, to let it go. Just take up your cross and follow me. I wonder how many this morning will say today, Lord, here am I. Use me. Help me die to self. See, the Lord is not going to use you greatly in the kingdom until we lay it down and we die to ourself. A swift reminder of the coming of the Lord and his power. And I will close on this verse. We'll pray in just a moment. Jesus said these words. Listen to these words in closing. And we will pick back up here next time we get into Mark. He said, and he said to them, truly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And they did. And they did. They saw Christ, they saw Christ die on the cross. They saw his resurrection. They saw him. They saw him ascend into heaven. And they certainly knew that the Holy Spirit had been sent to them on the day of Pentecost. Gave them power. Gives you power today by his Holy Spirit. To fall under subjection to the Lord. And say today, Lord, here am I. Let's pray together.